would Jesus undo? Okay, what would he undo? I mean, we, we talked about what would he do? What would Jesus do? Uh, many of us kind of wore the rubber wristband a few decades back, whenever that was, when we had that emphasis, and it was good. It was healthy. You know, the whole point was to every day ask, what would Jesus do and what would I do as a result of knowing Jesus, right? Uh, and then there's the do-do and then there's the don't-do, right? Things God wants us to do and things God wants us not to do. And we're taking one of those each week this month and talking about something he would undo in our lives. Um, want to say hello to all our Facebook friends who are out there in the Facebook Live world this week especially. Uh, you're welcome back to church, real church, next week. That's all I'm saying, all right? That's all I'm saying. Next week, you do not want to miss it. We're talking about getting past hollow worship to lively, heartfelt worship. And uh, next week is the week. If you ever thought about maybe possibly in the most inspired moment of your worship, raising your hand to shoulder level, next week is the week, okay? All right? You can pray about that this week. Get ready for that. And one of the things I like to do is um, change it up every so often. So we're going to change the kind of the order of our service, do a little teaching earlier, do a little singing later. It's going to be amazing. God's going to be with us, best of all, okay? And uh, so we're looking forward to that. What would Jesus undo? He would undo indifference. Uh, laziness, apathy. It's one of the big challenges of the church these days. Many of you know that I do some ministry, a limited amount, but some overseas. I've had the privilege of going to the Middle East and uh, being part of our ministry as a church there through our partners in Jordan. I've had the incredible life-changing opportunity to go to China and see what God is doing there. More people coming to faith uh, each week than maybe ever before in the history of the world. It's just amazing. And uh, we, have, we have ministry partners in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. I've been to both of those places. And so what happens in other countries is they face different challenges than we face. Like if you were a believer in China these days, you would face the possibility of um, persecution at work. That's one of the worst things. I mean... Right now, they've stopped uh, killing Christians. Isn't that a good thing? We're happy about that. But you can still get beat up. You can still get put in jail. And if you're not, uh, not willing to register with the government, it can cause you a lot of trouble at work. Um, when I was there recently, uh, I had led a young woman to faith in Christ about eight or nine years ago. And uh, it's been exciting to see her flourish as a follower of Jesus. She's part of a great, healthy congregation over there. She's been married since I met her, and she and her husband both are leaders in their church. But she was asking us when we were there to pray for her because she faced some opposition at work because she's known as a Christian. And uh, so if there's ever a problem, people bring that up and use it against her. Um, then there are people in places like uh, the Middle East, certain areas of India, where they are actually under very dangerous conditions, not from the government, but from opposing religions. The, the zealots who want to stamp out Christianity, who are afraid of the influence of the gospel, and so they 
have set fire to churches and actually killed some of the Christian leaders there. It's a, it's a terrible thing. We want to be praying for them. The persecuted church around the world is a real thing. Those are their issues. What are ours? When I'm over there and they talk about church back home, they say, well, you're, you're, you pastor a church in America. The challenge for America from where we sit is that you're so comfortable. You know, you don't, you don't have to worry about persecution or opposition, at least not at the level they do. So uh, they said, we've heard that most American households have a Bible, but most don't read it. How can that be? <laughs> I'm like, well, it can be. It can be. That's our challenge, right? If, if there's a challenge for the North American church, it's being a little too casual and a little too comfortable. And so Jesus would want to undo that, right? Mm-hmm. Yes? And uh, <laughs> like every pastor gets fired up about a topic like this. You know, boy, I mean, we're going to give it to him today. We're going to whip them into shape. You know, we're going to, all the uncommitted folks are going to leave here with their hair on fire. And, uh, you know, that, that's not in my heart to do that. That's something the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts and convicts us of the things that are unlike him. And he gives us new life and new energy. And that's my prayer. That uh, if there's an area in your Christian walk that you could use some encouragement, blow the dust off, right? Blow the dust off. Wake up. Um, in 1982, one of the leading voices in Christian music was tragically killed in a plane crash. And his music was the kind that was in your face. Uh, God wants to speak to you right here, right now. In fact, uh, when I, whenever I hear it, it still kind of does this energizing thing to my soul. His name was Keith Green, and he wrote this. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because we're asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. <laughs> Ouch! Okay? Um, Keith Green's music is prophetic and powerful and we all need it from time to time. I need it. I think about the times that I feel like I'm a little bit asleep in the light. When I have so much, so much opportunity, so much blessing, and I'm not as engaged and involved in the things of God as he might call me to be. And I think when you want the Holy Spirit to speak into your life and help you to see yourself, you, you, you need to turn to God's word, right? You need to turn to God's word. He, he speaks so beautifully and so powerfully and perhaps the, the quintessential passage on not being asleep, but being wide awake, is found in Revelation chapter 3. The, it can, it, would you say Revelation? Revelation? One more time. Revelation. Revelation. There's no S on that word, okay? It's my mission in life as a pastor to get rid of the S on the end of Revelations, because there's only one, and his name is Jesus. And if you look in your Bible, there's no S on the end of the last book of the Bible. It's Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 have seven letters to seven churches that each have an issue, just like we describe churches now around the world. And the issue for the church in the seventh city that gets the seventh and last letter is the city of Laodicea, a beautiful, prosperous city where um, 
the church has grown a little sleepy and lukewarm. And you probably have heard this before. Let's read what he says uh, the word of the Lord is, what the angel says. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, interesting word, not your thoughts, not your beliefs. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are, what's the next word? Lukewarm. <laughs> lukewarm. My wife is the hater of all things lukewarm. I mean, literally. You know, when we have a cold drink at our house, it's cold. And we have a hot drink. I can't drink it for about a half hour after she puts it on the table. I'm just saying, right? Now, I, you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I am about to what? Spit you out of my mouth. The, the word in the Greek there is vomit. Not a pretty word, okay? It's saying that um, that aspect of faith, when we're kind of half in and half out, we're neither caught nor cold, um, it not only offends God, God's heart, it turns his stomach. It's a powerful image. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to make God sick. Right? I don't want to make God sick. And there are times when my experience is I just get careless. I just get casual. Let me ask you, after everything as Jesus has done for you, do you think you might ever forget him? Even for a day? Have you ever gone to work or, or gotten busy for a whole eight hours and, and actually never really thought about him? I have. Sometimes it'll be more than a day and I get, just get caught up and, and I forget all that God's done for me. I believe that's one of the reasons the Lord gave us communion and the Lord's Supper, a piece of bread, a cup that says, do this in remembrance of me. And I'm sure those disciples sitting around that table said, we don't need a piece of bread. We don't need a cup of juice to remember you. We'll never forget you, Jesus. We'll never forget you, Jesus. You are the best. You are the greatest. You have given your life for us. We'll always love you back. And then they forgot, just like I do, just like you do. So the question is, how do we keep our Christian life at a healthy, hot point, okay? The fill-in on the outline there is hot is good. <laughs> hot is good. I, he says don't be hot or um, don't, don't be lukewarm. Be hot or be cold. Well, I, personally, I think Jesus would rather we're hot right? So here's, here's the thing. Um, it says there, I think the first point is to honestly evaluate your faith walk. Have you thought about it in a while? Here are some things I've been asking myself lately. Does my walk with Jesus look better in public than it does in private? Is my pattern of giving or serving more like a job than it is a real joy? When I get the urge to dig into my Bible and maybe read a certain passage, do I just wait until it passes? Do I like the church, you know, the, the feel, the vibe, <laughs> hanging out with these nice people, but I'm not sure I really love the Lord as much as I should? Do my prayers get repetitive and routine? What have I done lately to freshen up my soul? 
Something I might not have done in a while. Something I know would be good for me. Like, like some extra quiet time. Or like asking myself, is there some challenge that God is calling me to? Some act of obedience, some act of sacrifice that might stretch me, deepen me. Has it been a while? Would I rather critique the music and the message on Sunday than ask God what he's trying to say to me that I need? I guess my own journey has informed this message uh, more deeply than I at first thought, you know? Been a pastor 39 years, been a, a Christian longer than that, quite a bit longer than that. But I find those times when I feel a little stuck and a little stale, and the voice of the Holy Spirit speaks to me, don't be lukewarm. One of those times was when I read Mark Buchanan's powerful book, your God is too safe. He wrote this. Most Christians I know are stuck. We gossip even though we've made repeated resolves not to. We're in borderland, that wet, gray, lifeless city where we long for more good news, but we kind of expect bad. And when we're stuck in borderland, it's largely because our God is too safe. Because a safe God neither inspires awe nor worship nor sacrifice. The safe God doesn't ask a lot of us. He doesn't give us very much. He never drives us to our knees in hunger, praying desperately for more of his presence. He never sets us on our feet in fierce, fixed determination to follow him. He never makes us bold enough to dance. He never whispers anything into our hearts but greeting card slogans. He never asks that we embarrass ourselves by shouting his name from the rooftops. When I read that, it brought me to my knees. It put me on my face. It set me on a search to say, God, how do I keep a healthier, vibrant walk going? Not just now and then, but consistently. And what I learned during those seasons in my life have led me to the message for today. The second point in your outline is to understand the depth of your spiritual poverty. It's interesting that this letter to this church that says, you know, don't be lukewarm, be hot or cold. He then goes on and he says a couple of very powerful things. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, this is from God, gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. One of the challenges we all face is... Uh, our affluence, right? The abundance of stuff. We've all got stuff to keep us busy and to keep us happy. <laughs> and many times those really good and wonderful things that are blessings in our lives kind of crowd the Lord to the edge. Um, some people call it affluenza. You ever heard of that? Affluenza. The kind of uh, sickness that comes from having so much. Not, not very few of those things are bad things, you know. I don't know about you, I like driving a nice car. I like living in a comfortable home. I like having the ability to go on vacation and, you know, pursue my hobbies. Don't you? Don't you? But aren't there times when our pursuit of all those things gets a little over the top? 
It's a little all-consuming. I mean, I love sports probably more than most people, or at least as much as many, but every once in a while, my passion for sports just becomes out of control, right? I, I'm spending more, more energy and, and interest there than, I, than, I, than is healthy. And you fill in the blank as to what it is that can distract you. And you can, you can become out of balance with all that. And, and the scripture here says, uh, you think you're rich. You've got it all, right? You've got everything you need, but what's the truth about you? I got a nice car. I've got an iPhone. Uh, I've got cable TV. I've got my comfortable armchair. <laughs> it's tempting just to stay there and stay stuck. But a bigger bank account and a nicer house and more toys will not fill the spaces in my soul. And so he says, God's word says, we just read it, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Huh. Gold refined in the fire. Uh, refined in the fire, uh, testing, going through hard things, challenging things, saying, saying yes when, when it isn't easy, right? That's the testing that God does in our lives, and that's how our faith is refined, is by embracing those testing times and saying, God, I will trust you anyway. And when you hear his voice saying, try this, do that, Maybe you've never stepped up and volunteered before. and Maybe you've never gotten your hands dirty before. Maybe you've never been in a small group before. Maybe you've never witnessed before. As you step into those things, as you say, God, I will let you try me and test me and refine me and grow me. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Sometimes the most difficult seasons in life are the places we grow the most. And so the Lord says, he wants to refine us so that we become rich, to wear white clothes that will cover our shameful nakedness and put salve in our eyes so that we can see. I love that. Salve in our eyes so we can see. See the world the way it really is. See the opportunities and the challenges God has for us. You know, learn to see the world around us with his eyes, with spiritual vision. That That'll change your heart. That'll freshen you up. That'll keep you from being asleep in the light. I think so many times we've kind of settled in and settled down. We've stopped, we've stopped looking for the next challenge or the next opportunity. This past week I was listening to a series of lectures that were given on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., they were powerful stuff. I mean, a couple of them blew my hair back, right? I mean, they were like, as a Christian, what are you doing about the challenges of racism in our culture to this day? And they were God's word to me, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very real challenge that our world faces. Uh, several times this week, the Lord has spoken into my life about the challenge of refugees, both here and around the world. We're engaged with a congregation in Amman, Jordan, that is all about changing the, the lives of mostly Syrian refugees. Has Syria been in the news this week? 
And, um, you know, we, we know that there are necessary times, okay, when our, our nation has to do what our nation has to do. But I believe God's heart is for the lost and the lonely and the hurt and the needy. And he is yearning over those who are displaced and who are wounded. It, it makes my heart ache, and I am so glad there's a place and some people I know who are doing something about it. And it may not be comfortable, and it may not be easy, but it's so important, so important. So one of the pastors that I listened to, I wanted to share a little bit of his message with us today. His name is Matt Chandler. He's a pastor of a large church in Dallas, Texas. And he was speaking at this gathering, honoring the legacy and memory of Martin Luther King Jr. and challenging, a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pastors and as a result, their congregations with the challenges in front of us. So let's listen. Uh, I am the pastor of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. It is, it is a predominantly white congregation situated in a place where more than likely we will always be predominantly white. I don't feel an impulse to need to apologize for that uh, or feel bad about that. That is the reality of God's call on my life. It's where I've been placed. It's the ministry that God has given me. And I deeply love the men and women of the Village Church. They are my people and God is our God. That is the context that I find. But here's, here's something I noticed in this gets me into our journey. The, this people I love, this people that, that support me and applaud me and encourage me would operate in some inconsistencies that were discombobulating to me. If I preached a sermon out of the book of Isaiah on justice, my inbox would fill with their glee that I would broach the subject, but if I applied it to the subject of race, then, then all of a sudden I was a Marxist or I'd been watching too much of the liberal media. If I spoke on abortion, uh, I was applauded as courageous and a ferocious man of God, and yet when I would tackle race, I was being too political. If I quoted the great reformer, Martin Luther, never, and I've done that hundreds of times over 15 years, never did I get an email about his blatant anti-Semitism. But let me quote the great reformer, Martin Luther King Jr., and watch my inbox fill with people asking me if I'm aware of his moral brokenness. I want to be careful because these are people that I love. So I want to try to explain as best I can the inconsistencies in the white evangelicals that I have been called to lead around race. I, I think there's a cascading effect and it starts with ignorance. And let me chat about ignorance. Uh, it, I think what I'm talking about on ignorance is they don't know what they don't know and they are a part of a system that encourages their not knowing. Let, let me just lay this before you. I am a public school kid. My kids are public school kids. And he, here's, here's what I've done leading up to this. I have asked 30 white men and women that I know and love to tell me who they learned about during Black History Month. 
among the 30 plus men and women starting at age 12 all the way up to 60, I was given seven names. Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, Frederick Douglass, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., George Washington Carver, Malcolm X. If this is all we know, then intellectual, innovative, creative African-Americans are anomalies. They are not normal. These brothers and sisters are outliers. They are not what I should come to expect in my interactions with African-Americans. There's nothing about the great migration. How can you understand the layout of the United States of America without knowing about the great migration? How can you understand ghettos without understanding the great migration? Nothing, I mean nothing about Benjamin Banneker who laid out Washington DC. I don't need to keep going here, but the list is long and extensive and we don't know it. We don't know about housing disparity because we're snuggled in affluent suburbs where no one will lay that data in front of us. And even if that data is in front of us, our education has taught us that's not on us, that's on y'all. Being careful because I love these people. Mm. Powerful stuff. I think it's really uh, significant to me where the Lord has placed our church, right? I mean, here we are next door to Flint. Maybe the neediest city in America. And I am, I am so blessed by the ministry partnerships we have with our friends in Flint. I am, I am blessed to be part of this church that has a heart that cares. Um, in a month, many of us are going to go to the Adams neighborhood again, where we went last year. And we are going to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And it isn't just a project here and there, now and then, caring for people who are the lost and the least and the left out matters to God and matters to us. And whether it's any of the issues that uh, Pastor Chandler raised or anything else that God places on your heart, any of, the, any of the challenges of our culture and our time that Jesus wants to speak into, which is pretty much everything, he wants to challenge us to step up and say yes. I want to help. I want to do the right thing. I want to be the right people, the people Jesus would be proud of, right? Not bystanders, but problem solvers in Jesus' name. So let me ask you, are you willing to do something that God would call you to do that may not be natural or instinctive or comfortable, but if he calls you, you say yes? Will you dare to do whatever Jesus calls you to do in your day-to-day -day walk with him and in your ministry for him because it's out there on the edge that God does a fresh thing in your heart. I always find it amazing when I go through this passage that we've just been through. The Paul's, or John's letter from the Holy Spirit to the people of Laodicea telling them not to be lukewarm. And he closes that letter with a verse that doesn't seem to belong there at all. It's a verse you know, you've heard, but it doesn't seem to fit with anything about being lukewarm. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's what I, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, what does that have to do with, you know, getting alive and not being indifferent? Well, because the reason that happens to us, to me and to you, is that we lose our connection with Jesus in the moment, moment by moment, day after day. And I believe he's saying, I want to be part of every moment of every day. I stand at the door and knock. I don't want you to go to work by yourself and leave Jesus out. I don't want you to do family conversations around the dinner table and leave Jesus out. He wants to be in the middle of it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and fellowship, eat, share a meal with them. Uh, Does everybody here make it a a pretty good habit to eat almost every day? Anybody? Uh, When you miss a meal, do you notice? Right? No, he's saying this is the everyday stuff of everyday life. Jesus wants to be there. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and he's here knocking on the door of our heart today. And he's saying, will you let me in today, tomorrow, the next day, and the day after that? Will you let me in in the morning? Will you get up? Will you consciously turn your thoughts to him? Maybe maybe the Lord is speaking to you today about your first prayer in the morning. Jesus, I want to do today with you. Someone said to me, you know, Glenn, the thing that will help you to be the most spiritually alive is to decide to do one thing every day you couldn't do without Jesus. One thing every day you couldn't do without Jesus, loving a person who's different than you are. Um, Speaking of his goodness to somebody who needs him. Doing a, a simple, kind act of service and love. Every day, one thing that you couldn't do without Jesus. And watch what it does. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Let him in. Come alive. Wake up and watch what Jesus does. Now the worship team's going to come. Let's pray together. Lord God, I love you. There is nobody like you. We love you back, and we thank you that you love us, and we pray that today, whatever it is you want to say to us, we're listening. And however it is you want to stir us up, Lord, stir us up. Whatever the issues are that you want us to speak into and become engaged in, Lord, give us grace, give us strength, give us courage, give us boldness. Lord, every time I've heard that song that says that we're asleep in the light, I just pray that it won't be true for me, it won't be true for us, not here, not now, not today, not ever. So thank you that you're here to help us. You're here to encourage us. You're here to bring life and life to the full, more and better life than we have ever dreamed of. So we open ourselves to you. You knock. We listen. If anyone opens the door, I will come in. So Lord, we open the door. Today, every day, 
Lord, I just pray especially for, for those of us who feel stirred up in whatever way that is, Lord. Keep us alive. Keep us awake. Keep us listening and obeying. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers and meeting us here, touching our lives. Continue to do whatever it is you want to do in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.